Good morning, how's everyone? Good, good. If you haven't met me, my name's Eric. I'd love to get to know you after the service. Uh, we'd love to answer any questions or help you get connected to our church. Out in the courtyard, there's a welcome center where we have a present for you and some literature maybe to help you grow in your faith or answer questions you have and help you get connected to our church. Uh, just a couple of things really quick. One, if you've ever struggled with sharing your testimony, sharing the gospel, um, sharing your faith with people, uh, today after this service in the activity center, the middle building, uh, we'll have a training on that and there will be food and uh, you can kind of learn how to go over to the gospel and share your faith. So we invite you to that. Um, two, remember next week is Market of Hope. So make sure you get uh, your catalog and go through there. It's a fun thing to do for your family. Um, always, always remember, um, we love to give gifts, um, but these gifts help the gospel be shared. They help people be strengthened in their faith. Um, it's a gift and a message. It's an encouragement of who God is, of what Christ did. And so these gifts help us do that. And so we love to participate and see what God does. And so just make sure you prayerfully go over that and look. And then the last thing is, I know there's lots and lots of questions uh, about in the media what's going on with Israel. And we will do a podcast this week to, to go over that. There's lots of um, things to go over and cover. Uh, but we're going to pray for Israel. And, and here would be um, my request as a pastor. Um, that, and I hope you would, you know, this would make lots of sense to you, is when, it, when you think of Israel, do not politicize it. Okay? Israel existed far before Democrats and Republicans. Okay? It was God's chosen people to take the good news, the light, to the ends of the earth. And then the Bible says that it wasn't because they were great and mighty. It's just simply that God chose to use them for his purpose, for his glory. And we know that God, you read through Romans 9 and 11, he says that though they rejected Christ, he rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that he will graft them back in. And so we can expect that God will one day bring, you know, Jews back to himself. Is this that event? I have no clue. But it does shape me and inform me when I think about them that we should pray through mad chaos and evil that God would soften their heart and bring them to himself. It shapes how I should think about them when they go through these things. And so as we pray for them, just keep that in mind, um, that they would return to God's word. They would see Christ as the Messiah, that that would be our prayer. And that through this, God would be glorified and he would bring good to those who love him. And so that's our prayer. And look through, uh, you know, look through this week. We'll have a podcast go through some of the passages and help us shape and think about this from a biblical standpoint. So I'm going to pray for Israel, and then we're going to jump right into our sermon after that. So if you'd pray with me. Dear Jesus, um, we just, we acknowledge there's, there's things we don't understand. Um, there's evils being committed that we can't wrap our minds around, that our, our hearts uh, well up and our emotions rise high. And God, we just, we don't know what to do with that other than to bring it to you and say, we know you're sovereign. We know you're good. And we know we can trust you. We pray through these uh, just acts of chaos and evil that you would draw people to yourself, that you would soften the hearts 
of Israel, that you would soften their hearts and draw them back to your word. We pray through this that you would do a mighty work, that they would come to a place of wanting to follow you and love you. And so we just pray as brothers and sisters in Christ here that we would pray for them and lift them up and hold them uh, in our thoughts and in our prayers and in our emotions. And God, as we open your word now, I pray that your words would speak to us. You'd teach us from Matthew 11, uh, that we would um, glean from here what it means to trust you, what it means to love you, uh, what it means to have a proper relationship with you. So we pray during this time that you would speak and not me, that we would trust you uh, with every part of us for your words to come and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 14, and uh, we're going we're gonna to hit something that I hope brings great clarity um, to you. And, and so just kind of to jump right in, and then I'm going to give you a story to help explain some things we need to understand it, is this is one of those passages that people just simply can't wrap their heads around because of this. Their thought is, if I am a good Christian, and I am a good person, and I do good things, that what happens to John the Baptist could never happen to me. What is that? That John the Baptist would be beheaded and his head would be a gift to his stepdaughter niece. And so you think to yourself, how could I do all these good things, but yet this is a reward? Those two things don't fit. And so before we can unpack that, I want to share a story with you. Um, for me, the, the, the realization of how these things fit together started uh, when I was in college. <clears throat> and in my undergrad, um, I had a Greek professor, and it was right during this transition from becoming a college to a university. And so there was all this liberalism kind of coming in with new professors, and there was just one old guy just holding the fort down, okay? His name was Nofel Staten. He was about five foot four. He was tiny with gray hair and a beard, and he rode a Harley, right? And he'd come into school on his Harley with a box of donuts every morning. And he had had four heart surgeries, four major heart surgeries. And he had also had, uh, while we were there at school, his daughter, her car broke down. And as she was, you know, in the desert highway trying to figure out what was wrong, the car just combusted. She died. And so you have a man whose daughter has died. He's just gone through four heart surgeries. And we were told that he'd had surgery over the weekend. And so Monday, when we come to class, we're expecting a substitute. No, 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 it's him. He walks in and we're like, dude, what are you doing? And he starts, and this is what he says to us. He says, you know, I should be dead. I'm not allowed to take any medicine because they fear it would kill me because my heart couldn't handle any type of stress. And he says, do you know what you guys need to understand? At that point, you listen, right? You listen. And what's funny is he has his Greek New Testament upside down and he's reading from it, which is funny because he had it memorized, not that he could read upside down. And so he, he takes us to John 1.16. He says, you have to understand, this is this will tie together a little bit here. John the Baptist has come and John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, behold the lamb, right? To take away the sins of the world. And he says, for today you have seen grace upon grace. He says, if you don't understand 
that Christ is bringing grace upon grace, you will never understand the Christian life. He says, that's how I can stand here and tell you that me being here is an act of grace. And we're sitting there going, wow. And he says, God is grace upon grace. So you know what he does to illustrate this to us? He says, I want you to envision that I am an act of grace. And Christ is grace upon grace. And then he literally jumps up on the desk and goes, grace upon grace. I can't even do that today. He was, you know, in his 80s. And it stood out that God is grace upon grace. What was he getting at? If we don't first realize that the first act of grace is that you are living and breathing. When you get to your John the Baptist moment, you will feel entitled and you will think that God has let you down and that he is not meeting your standards. His point was the fact that I am even breathing among you is an act of grace. None of us deserve to live. God did not have to create us. This is what in theology is called the common grace that God gives to all men and women, that you are living, you are breathing, you actually have a life. That is grace. Anything beneficial after that is a bonus. So then what is the grace upon grace? is that Christ would come and pay for your sin on your behalf that you could never do. That's the free gift. That's what grace means. So it is grace upon grace. And so he stood there, four heart attacks and the lost daughter later, communicating with fervor and passion his gratefulness for the grace upon grace that is Jesus Christ. If you do not understand, you won't get to John the Baptist and it won't make sense. Okay, so let's walk through this. Here's obedience, point one, where I think we get things really mixed up in our Christianity. Our thought is, if I'm good enough, if I pray enough, I read enough, I go to church enough, I watch my swear words, I don't cheat on my spouse, I pay my taxes. If I do all of these things, then that precludes me or saves me from any type of harm or suffering. And so we create this formula and then bad things happen. It's like, wait, no, God, how? I'm a good person. I fill in the blank, right? I do great things. And what my teacher was getting, if you understand grace upon grace, you'd understand we deserve nothing. We're entitled nothing. We have Christ. So why is this important? When you get to John the Baptist, it's important you realize, okay, yes, he is spoken of, you know, from the Old Testament as one who would prepare the way for Jesus. He would tell people, here's the lamb, here's the Messiah, here's the Savior. He does that. But I want you to see what Jesus says about John the Baptist. Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 11, 11. What does it say? This is Jesus. He says, truly, I say to you, Among those born of a woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Those are big words, aren't they? No one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus declares he's the greatest man who's ever lived. And what is his reward? That his head would be a party gift to his stepdaughter niece at a drunken bash. If John the Baptist can't earn the right 
to be saved from prison and beheading. What does that tell us? That we should never put hope in those things. Why? Because Jesus never promises those things. Here's why we're talking about this. One of maybe the greatest things I cover in pastoral counseling is people who are angry at God for things God never promised. They've created this system and they're angry that God has, now fill in your blanks. This is gonna look different for everybody. He's allowed an illness to happen. He's allowed a fracture in their family. He's allowed an act of evil to happen somewhere in their family. He's allowed a miscarriage. He's allowed infertility. He's allowed unfaithfulness. Whatever has happened, God, how could you do this to me? I'm a good person. I do good things. There's people who do far worse things than me, who have a far better life than I do. And they're angry at God. But God never promised that you and I would be free of hard times, suffering, and hard circumstances. If John the Baptist didn't get the get-out-of-jail-free card, none of us are. None of us are. It's important that we realize that as life moves forward, the world is getting harder to be a Christian in. The persecution, the suffering, the butting of heads, the worldview. And if we don't have it straight in our head, what does God actually promise? There are so many disappointments and so many just failures and sadness that we will bring upon ourselves and and impose on God when God never promised it. So let's look really quick. What does God promise? Look at Revelation 21, three through four. It says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He promises in heaven, all of those things will be no more. That is an absolute promise. This is why you can see that when John the Baptist dies, he's now going to the greatest place he could ever be. With God the Father. With no sin, no shame, no suffering, no tears, no pain. And until Christ comes back and ends and judges all things, there will always be death and disease and pain, all of these things will be in our lives until Christ comes back. And so it's important that we understand God never promises us those things. And if you understand, A, that you've been given grace, the ability to live, and you understand that, B, Christ came to take away your sins, to be eternally with God, you understand he's giving you everything you need. This is why we look back, remember, going through Matthew, going through, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like. One of the things he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a great treasure. It's a treasure that you would sell everything to have. This is what allows John the Baptist to be in prison 
and to be faithful and to be obedient because they cannot take his treasure. They cannot take Jesus, the payment, the lamb, the one who would pay for his sins. And so as we look, part of John the Baptist's obedience is God says, there's one more thing you're gonna go through. You're gonna go and you're gonna suffer and your head's gonna be a gift to someone else. And so we have to be open to the idea that God might actually say, hey, the plan is for you to suffer. And that when he says that, it does not mean he doesn't love you. Does God not love John the Baptist? Jesus calls him the greatest man ever born of a woman. If that's not high praise, I don't know what is. So the reality exists that God says, yes, you're going to lose that child. You're going to have that cancer. You're going to lose that job. And I still love you. God doesn't look down on you and say, try harder. If you just would have tried harder, I would have done this for you. I would have loved you. You see, God doesn't create this kind of quid pro quo this favor for a favor with us. That's how we think it works, right? I scratch God's back, he scratches mine. And then bad things happen to us. You say, God, I've been scratching your back for a long time. Why aren't you scratching back? See, if you don't think the fact that you're even breathing is an act of grace, then you will always err to the side that God owes me because of my behavior. Here's the thing. You don't want a God who requires your ability to perform for him to give his love. Why? Because we would never earn it. We'd never be good enough. That's the second act of grace, grace upon grace. He dies in our place. Christ does what we can't and allows us to be in a relationship with God forever. Okay, so this is important. When we understand that he is our greatest treasure, that there's nothing greater than loving and following Jesus. What will happen is people will try to take that from you. They'll try to silence you. And what you're going to see through the New Testament is you can silence the messenger, but you cannot silence the message. The thought is if we just kill John the Baptist, we just take him away, we can silence him. If we just kill Jesus, we will silence it. No, no, no. The message keeps on going. Jesus is the only way to God. There's only one way to heaven, and it is through Christ paying for your sins on your behalf, believing and receiving and responding to that truth. See, here's what you have to know. Herod was a ruler in that area. And it's very important to understand a little bit of the context of what's happening. You have what's called the Hapax Romana. What's that called? Roman peace. Rome would keep peace among all these nations and countries by putting someone from their ethnicity in charge. And they would let them rule over one of their own. And the way it worked was if you keep the peace, we'll let you guys pray to the gods that you have and keep your customs and keep your festivals and keep your parties. But if war breaks out, we'll send our soldiers and we will fix it. 
So what you have are these rulers that have been instituted by Rome to try and keep the peace. So Herod is in this great dilemma. He's got John the Baptist saying, hey, you're married to your brother's wife after you've been divorced and she's been divorced. That's a problem. Now, I know you guys, when you start your Bible reading plans in January, most of you will make it to Leviticus 18, okay? And you'll be grateful. Like, that's exactly what he broke. He slept with his brother's wife. That's against the law. So your reading plan came in handy. John the Baptist is banging that drum. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. Now, Herod, if he kills John the Baptist, well, that's a problem because it says that he is one who's loved as a prophet. The people might get angry. They get angry. They might go to war. They go to war. Rome comes. He loses his job. He's like, I'll silence him and I'll put him in prison. But what did he not count on? His brother's wife, that is now his wife, would get him drunk, send his daughter, niece, stepdaughter, niece, to dance for him and demand a gift of John the Baptist's head. You see, you can silence the messenger because John the Baptist dies, but you cannot silence the message because the truth remains that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. You have sinned, you have sinned against God. And you need a savior to pay for that sin. It's what the world hates to hear over and over again. It's what Herod hated to hear over and over again. It's what his wife hated to hear. So they silence the messenger, but they cannot silence the message. This is why the story says, it must be, G- it must be John the Baptist resurrected. Why? Because the message keeps coming in the form of Jesus. So they cannot escape it. And so Jesus is continuing the message from the father he is the only way to be with God. He's the only way to pay for your sins. And so he transitions now. And what you have is Jesus, you know, mourning. Why? Because John the Baptist was family. That was his cousin. He was the one who saw, behold, the lamb. This was his brother. This is the man he worked with. And you look through this, the other gospels, they all tell this story and they have different pieces you know, and I think one of the questions you ask is, man, if, if obedience can't buy you safety, why should I obey at all? It's a good question, isn't it? This is why Jesus warned them. You obey because Jesus is your greatest treasure. See, that relationship with Jesus is not about a reward. It's about a response to the reward of salvation. It's a response to the treasure. The lamb took away my sin. My response is to obey. My response is to love him. My response is to go to prison faithfully, loving him, holding him high, because it's response-driven faith, not reward-driven faith. So this is as the disciples are learning, treasuring Christ is the essence and key in all situations. Obey because you love him. Obey because you love him. And so when someone wants to hate you, not love you, come down on you, you respond out of the work of Christ. He loved you. He paid for you. 
And it is in that relationship you see things how he sees things and you learn what he sees and you model what he sees and you want to be like him because he is your treasure. So we see, what do we see from Jesus? First thing, that Jesus is compassionate. See, as Jesus is mourning the loss of someone he loves, the needs of the people don't go away. Much like parents, right? You're trying to mourn and deal with something The needs of the children are always present. And so Jesus finds himself in a moment trying to find rest and solitude and go to the Father. He sees thousands of people. They've been walking with him for days. If you look at the end of this passage, it says there's 5,000 men. That doesn't include women and children. Probably easier to think of, man, there's so many people. Just count them in. We'll kind of give us an idea. If you round out the numbers, that's probably around 15 to 20,000 people. And Jesus sees all of the people, all of them. And it says that he has compassion. Think through, why would Jesus have compassion on these people? Well, think through what they're going through. They have sick people. Because you look at the Gospels, they all have different parts of this story. They pick it up. And one, and one it says, you know what? That he was healing their sick. In another, they're confused, and it says that's why he was teaching them. They are also under Roman oppression. They're being ruled and governed by Rome. And they have crooked, crooked people ruling them like Herod. And so they don't like their, you know, Herod's not even really seen as a Jew because he has a Samaritan mother. He's breaking the law. And this crooked man is ruling over them with a crooked empire over him. And so they have evil corruption in their political future. They have sick people who are dying and they have the unfulfilled promises of the Old Testament hanging over their heads, combined with they haven't eaten probably in two days. It says that Jesus looks out and he has great compassion on the people. Now here's what I want you to catch. Jesus has compassion And what you're going to see is Jesus feeds the 5,000. But I want you to catch how he does it, how he shows compassion. Notice that the disciples go to him in verse 15. And the disciples, they're looking around and they're like, oh my gosh, look at all these people. What are we going to do? How are we going to feed them? If we don't feed them, they're probably going to break out, riots, fighting. I don't know. So like, Jesus, we got a solution We'll go send everyone back to the towns. They can eat and they can sleep and then they can come back. Problem solved. Do you remember what I told you the irony of Matthew is? If you go back just one chapter and you look at chapter 13, 51, Jesus had just spent all this time doing what with them? Telling them this is what the kingdom of like. I am the king I am your treasure. I am sovereign over all things. And then he asked them in 51, do you understand all these things? And what do they say? Yes, Jesus, absolutely. We understand everything. And then not even one chapter later, they're like, Jesus, you need to do this. Send everybody away. As if Jesus needed their help. As if Jesus didn't know what to do. And they're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, he's like mourning John the Baptist. We better step in and tell him what to do. Why is this important? Are they showing a belief that Jesus will do a work? 
Not a trick question. Okay, because the last story we went to, Jesus was in Nazareth. And it says that Jesus did not do miracles. Why? Because of their unbelief. And what did we talk about last week? Jesus is never handcuffed by us. Jesus is never in heaven going, man, I just wish you would let me do this. I just wish I could show you how good I am. But your unbelief shackles my power. I just wish there was a way for me to do something. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. And might I add, it's not the Jesus you want. Do you want a Jesus who can only love you when you're good enough? Do you? No, because we'd never be good enough. Jesus feeds the thousands despite the lack of faith. Jesus shows compassion even though they have no belief he can do anything. That's good news, isn't it? That God acts and blesses us even when we don't think he can do anything. He has compassion on us and says, I know you don't think anything can happen of this. No good can come of this. I'm, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. And he feeds the 5,000 because he has compassion on them. This is important for us to realize our unbelief doesn't shackle him. It just speaks to the greatness of his goodness that he provides for us in light of our unbelief, even when we don't have belief. This is the goodness and the greatness of Jesus, a compassionate savior that gives even when we don't deserve it and we don't think it's possible. So as you think through this now, Jesus has this compassion and he gives them food, but he also taught them. And here's what I want you to understand about compassion and mercy ministries is Jesus often shows compassion and he does give food. He does say, stand up and walk. He does say, he does give sight to the blind. These are all amazing acts of compassion and mercy. But what does Jesus himself say? What is greater, get up and walk or your sins be forgiven? Which one's greater? Your sins be forgiven. Why? Because that's an eternal reward. For all of eternity, you get to be with God the Father. Hell is not your home. Heaven is your home. That's the greater miracle, isn't it? But when it comes to us celebrating Jesus, what do we typically celebrate? The temporary gifts. I couldn't find a parking spot and I prayed and God got me right close to the door so I didn't have to walk for. Praise God, right? We say these things. I was so upset this morning. I could have knocked somebody out. I prayed and God calmed my heart. Oh, that's amazing. I, you know, couldn't even walk. And then I prayed and God helped me get through it. These are good things, right? But if the greater thing is the forgiveness of sins, shouldn't that be the greater celebration? It should, shouldn't it? But that's not the thing we celebrate. His compassion, his kindness is to lead us to repentance. That's God's word. It's okay to celebrate that he does these things. 
But he does these things as a means to talk about the forgiveness of sins. That God would look graciously down on sinners and forgive them when they don't deserve it. That he would send his son to do what they couldn't, which is die on the cross, bear the wrath of God, rise from the dead, conquer sin, conquer death, and now make a way to be with God the Father. The act of compassion is part and parcel with being able to share that story. That's why it's so important you understand with Market of Hope, we don't just give blankets and t-shirts. We give blankets and t-shirts that remind them of the work of Christ, that remind them in their villages with AIDS and mud huts that Christ died for their sins. And even though they have AIDS and live in mud, that they could be in heaven with God the Father because of Christ. The gift gives the opportunity to share the message because the message cannot be defeated even when you try to silence the messenger. See, it's in his compassion that he shares these messages of the forgiveness of sins. Do not divorce the two and never celebrate the temporary gift more than the eternal gift. Celebrate both but celebrate forgiveness more. This is what they're learning in this passage. Now, all of this happens in spite of what? The pragmatism. What's pragmatism? It's just a fancy way of saying the practical thinking. The practical thinking. See, the disciples are like, oh my gosh, we got to solve this. We got to solve this. And so they go to Jesus and they go, Jesus, here's the plan. We're going to send them all back. They're going to eat. They're going to sleep. And then they'll come back. Practically, do you realize that doesn't even work? These towns can't feed 20,000 people. See, they're not learning how to pray. They're not learning who the king is. This is why it matters to us because we do the same thing. God, I got it all worked out. You just need to do this. You do this. You do this. And then everything will be fine. God's up there going, thank you. I didn't even think of that. I'm so glad you told me what to do through your prayer. I was confused. I didn't know they were hungry. I thought they were praying. God does not need our help. Jesus is very aware that they're hungry. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't go to him with a concern, but I want you to think about a different approach. I want you to think, what would it be like if you said, Jesus, all of these people need to eat. What do you want us to do? Do you see the difference? Because the way this works is we go to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is what I have. What can you do with it? And in this story, it's Jesus. I got two fish and some bread. What can you do with it? And he says, I'm going to feed everybody. Do you see the difference? It's not, God, I already know what needs to happen. Why is that a bad way? Because when you hit your John the Baptist moment, you're like, God, that's not what we talked about. Cancer was never a part of the plan. Not being able to have a kid was never a part of the plan. Losing my job was never a part of the plan, God. Because we imposed our plan on him. And then we get angry at him when it doesn't 
come about. See, in this model, you say, Jesus, this is what I have. And he goes, yep, you're going to go to prison. Okay, Jesus. Okay, I'll go to prison. Whatever you want, you're my treasure. Whatever you want, you're my treasure. That's what makes John the Baptist the greatest man ever born of a woman. He understood grace upon grace. He'd be in prison, but he has his treasure. He has Christ. See, pragmatism sometimes just overwhelms us and it just clouds our judgment. And we think, God thinks like I do, obviously. If I have these emotions and these feelings, obviously it's the plan of God and it's the work of God. And sometimes God does put something on your heart and you pray for it and God answers it. But it's a matter of approaching it through the kingdom of heaven. He's the king. He's in charge. King, what do you want me to do? He says, whatever I have, God, take it and use it. And then you trust that God will take what you have and he'll multiply it for his glory and your good. See, this is important because moving forward, what we have to understand is that you might be put in positions of suffering and pain and hurt. And that's not God saying, you didn't work hard enough. That's God saying, this is a part of the plan. He still loves you. Well, God, I can't have kids. He still loves you. Well, God, I have cancer. He still loves you. See, what we have to stop doing is trying to rationalize. You know, this person goes to cancer surgery. The doctor gets ready to go in and he's like, there's no cancer. I don't know. You had an eight pound tumor yesterday, I swear. And then on Tuesday, a lady goes to the doctor. The cancer's still there. They go in and they take out the cancer and then she dies the next day. And we're going, God, why did he live? And she, she doesn't. See, that's for the king to know. What's for us to know is that God loved the man he healed and God loved the woman he sent to heaven. God loved them both. All you can do in each circumstance is say, God, I got two fish and some bread. Whatever you want, just do it. In one instance, he'll say, boom, I'm gonna take it all away. Then you go celebrate his compassion. In the other instance, he says, your time's up. It's time to come home. And you say, praise God, because they're in a place with no sin, no suffering, no shame, and no tears. In both instances, you praise God for his compassion. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. See, these are important truths for us moving forward that we don't push on God and project on God the system that we think he should adhere to. Here's my pastoral prayer for you, is that you would never find yourself in a position of saying, if I just would have tried harder, this would have never happened to me. That you could wrap your heads around the idea that sometimes God says, 
You're going to go to prison and it's because I love you and you're going to be okay. And I'm going to be with you. And we're going to walk with you. You see, this is often how God operates. He puts us in a position of weakness and he says, trust me. Okay, I want you to notice how he even works through this with the disciples. Does Jesus throw up all the bread and all the fish on one hill and say, all right, everybody, there's your food, go and get it. So everyone can see it and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, I think that's enough. Do you think they could hold enough in 12 baskets to feed 20,000 people? The answer is no, they're not that strong. So what did they have to do? They had to take the basket and go, oh boy, I hope there's, yep, there's another fish, woo, right? And they go in, oh, I hope there's more, oh, there's more bread. Each time they had to what? Trust that Christ would provide for the next and the next and the next and the next. You see, it is God's method often to put us in a position of weakness to say, do you trust me? Just trust me. Why? Because when we're strong, we tend towards pragmatism. Oh God, I got a plan. Don't you worry. You just do this. I'll do this and it'll all work out fine. It is in that arrogance that we don't realize we have a treasure. And it's in that arrogance that we don't say, God, this is all I have. Use it, take it, whatever you want. You want all the fish, you want all the bread, take it all. Whatever I trust, you can multiply it. I trust you'll make it work. I trust you'll provide with my time, my talent, and my treasure. God, here it is, take it. I trust you. That is actually the position that you'll see in the New Testament. That's why Paul has a thorn in the flesh. That's why Epaphroditus is sick. Timothy is sick. Stephen is stoned. It's in these great positions of weakness. They say, God, I don't understand this, but I trust you. You are a compassionate God who sent a compassionate son, savior, king to die for me. Here it is. I trust you. That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom. Okay, some questions and things for us to think through. Question one, what do we learn from John the Baptist's story? That our obedience doesn't equal safety. That God never promises, if you obey, you won't be in pain. And that when you're in pain, it doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Whatever it is you're going through, you think, man, this is God. He hates me. No, he loves you. And you need to trust him in the midst of that pain to walk you through that pain for his glory and your good. Two, why do some Christians believe that obedience produces earthly blessings? Because it's easier. I go to church, I tithe, I pay my taxes, I don't cheat on my wife, then... I get fill in the blank. It's easy. We can balance it out. Oh, said some swear words. Better write a bigger check. What was in that market of hide? Pastor, what's your, what one do you want the most? That way I can swear and, you know, cheat on my wife tomorrow. It's, it's, it's not how it works. But it's easy for us. Reward-driven faith instead of response-driven faith. Three, can you name another example in the Bible where 
obedient but still suffered or had an illness. Why is this important? Because as the world comes down and we speak the truth and we say, that's not what God's word said. Like John the Baptist, we will have consequences and pay prices. And it's important to realize it's not God not loving you. You stand in a hall of fame with Christians before you that were persecuted, that had sicknesses, diseases, illnesses, deficiencies. All of those things, God says, just trust me, I can use it. So remember the other examples, you know, Moses, Paul, Timothy, all of those things, think through it. Four, if there's no promise of physical blessing, then why do we obey God? This is the heart of the question. Because you love him. If he is not your treasure and it is not obedience responding to the treasure, you will always be let down because you think your performance has earned you more than what you have. You will hate God, curse God, and be angry because you think your performance has yielded more and he has not given it. Response-driven faith. Savior crucified in my place. Response is whatever you want, God. Whatever you want, I'm yours. Take my fish, take my bread, whatever you want. Five, what does the feeding of the 5,000 teach us about Jesus, the disciples, and ourselves? That Jesus is compassionate. And that Jesus can use anyone and anything for his glory and your good. That pragmatism is often the enemy of trusting Jesus. And then like the disciples, we have an opportunity to give what we have and trust him for the results, for his glory and our good. We want to be a church that trusts him with everything we have. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you and we praise you for what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, child of God, that you are compassionate and kind that you love us when we don't deserve it, that you show acts of mercy and kindness despite our insecurity and our unbelief and our leanings toward pragmatism. It's our prayer that we would trust you, that we would give all of us to you and say, here's what I have, Lord. Use it for your glory. Give us that strength. Give us that desire for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a great passage for communion. It has in front of us the breaking of bread and celebrating the gift of God. And this is why Jesus says in other places that he is the bread of life. You know, look at verse 20. It says they ate and they were satisfied that Christ satisfies and has more. And has more. Communion reminds us of that. That his body broken His blood poured out on our behalf. It pays for our sins. It satisfies our soul. You know, at OBC, we believe communion is an act of remembrance. It's not an act of salvation. But we also believe it's for Christians. It's for people who have trusted Jesus as the payment for their sin on their behalf. 
who realize they've sinned against the holy God and only Jesus can make it right for them. And so for the Christians, when you do this, make sure you open the bread first. If you open the juice and then go to the bread, sometimes the juice will end up on the person next to you. We don't want that, okay? Bread first, then juice. And just take some time to walk through how have I sinned against the holy God? Where have I been selfish, jealous, gossiped, committed idolatry, adultery, anger, you know, murder in the heart? Where have I cursed? Where have I been immoral? Where have I not trusted you? Where have I allowed pragmatism to govern me instead of trusting you? Where have I held back my fish and my loaves and not said, take it, Lord, I trust you. Where have I fallen short? Lay it before Jesus. And 1 John tells us, if we confess our sin, then he is faithful and just to forgive us. And after you ask for that forgiveness, you can stand tall in your heart knowing that he is compassionate and he forgives you and he loves you and you are his. And at the end of that, we will have a time of celebration through worship. John will get up and he'll lead us and we're gonna sing with all our heart, all our mind and all our soul. And we're gonna thank Jesus for paying for our sins, for being the bread of life that we could not be, for taking what little we have and using it for his glory and our good. You end communion with celebrating the work of Christ. So after I pray, you take some time on your own, walk through that sin, end with thankfulness, and we'll sing together as a church family. I'm gonna pray. Let's go. Dear Jesus, we thank you for being kind and gracious and having compassion. That you love us when we don't deserve it. You send your son Jesus to do what we couldn't, live a perfect life, die a perfect death, rise from the grave, conquering sin and death on our behalf. Our prayer, Lord, is you would go into the depths of our heart, root out the sin, and replace that with gratefulness and thankfulness and joy and faith and the ability to trust you with whatever we have, that we just put it in front of you and say, God, use what I have for your glory and my good. I trust you. I love you. I celebrate you. We would walk through that range in our prayer then we would stand and sing as people who trust you and love you in all things. You are a good God that we trust and we love. Work in our hearts during this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.